All right. Today we're looking at a rather interesting passage. Um, it's Acts chapter 5. And I'm, I'm going to talk about this passage, and I think as I read it, uh, it will become clear uh, why I have titled the sermon what I have titled it, which is, Is God Mean? I think that's a question that many people are asking today, uh, especially in America in the 21st century in 2019. Uh, and so I just want to talk about that for a little while. Let's dive in, and we'll get a running start in uh, verse 33 of the previous chapter, just so we can kind of understand what's going on. So with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now chapter 5, and a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard and heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are good, and we just got done singing about how you are kind, and we, we just got done singing and contemplating how you have given yourself so that we can come to know you. And Lord, with that, I hope that today that we will also remember that you are God, and that we will treat you with the, ever, with the reverence and the respect that you deserve, and that will order our lives accordingly. God, I do ask for grace as we deal with a passage that um, is maybe difficult for us to understand. It's difficult for me, anyway. So, Lord, I just ask that um, somehow the words that I say would help us to understand you better and draw closer to you. And I just ask for these things in Jesus' name. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, I think it's easy when we read a passage of Scripture like this to wonder, 
is God mean? Is God some kind of a capricious, cruel tyrant who only cares about whether or not people like him? Self-obsessed, like many of the leaders in our world today? And I think it's easy, especially when we look at a passage like this, to leave with some unresolved questions. And so I'm going to do something I don't usually do today. I'm actually going to just, if I can, take a step or two away from the pulpit and sit down at the table with you all and just let you into my own process. Let you into some of the questions I have when I look at a passage like this as a mortal man, if you'll allow me uh, such an indulgence to do so today. When we look at this, at this story, I, I have a lot of unresolved questions. One question I have is, did Peter kill them? Right? Especially in his pronouncement against Sapphira, it seems like there's a possibility here that maybe because God has given authority to this very human person, that maybe somehow his anger is at play, and that maybe that's why Ananias and Sapphira were killed for this, you know, not being as generous as they said they were going to be. I, 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 in looking into this, uh, you know, while preparing this sermon, I actually found that John Chrysostom and many other biblical scholars, of some of worthy note, uh, have wondered this same thing. Most people dismiss it, and I think I kind of dismiss it, but I still, part of me still wonders, what, what's going on here? Is this, is this really God at work, or is this corruption in the Christian community, and we're just seeing like, well, this is the humanity of people, uh, interspersed with the glory of God in people, and it's just messy and ugly, and there's something about this story that bugs me. It just doesn't seem quite right with what I understand about Jesus and his nature. I also wonder about Ananias and Sapphira's eternal destiny. Like, does the fact that they drop dead mean that they will not be raised at the final resurrection? Is that the end of Ananias and Sapphira? Are they judged forever? Or were they judged in a way that it was actually God's mercy? God knew that if they were to stay alive, they would continue sinning and go down a path that was unredeemable. And so God, in his mercy, short-circuited that process so that they could have uh, an experience of grace in eternity. I don't really know. I don't think the passage really tells us, but it's, it's a question that feels unresolved when I read this passage, and I don't know what to do with it. I, have, I also wonder, and, and this is really just kind of selfish and just, you know, just trying to be honest. As a 21st century man, as a person who's read much of the New Testament, been informed deeply by Christian theology and, and, and all of my sensibilities of equality and, and uh, all the good things that I think, um, you know, ultimately kind of have their roots in Jesus, uh, but, you know, are very 21st American sensibilities— 21st century American abilities, I have to wonder, why did Luke have to include this one, right? I, I mean, if I'm really honest, I kind of wish this just wasn't in the New Testament, if I'm totally, brutally honest with you guys. There's something about it that just makes me uncomfortable. And sometimes when I read the Bible and it makes me uncomfortable, I feel like, ah, man, did that have to be the story? Did that have to go in there? Maybe you think that's a little bit blasphemous. Maybe it really is. <laughs> maybe, I'm just, maybe I'm just that horrible. And here's the, here's the point. Here's why I'm letting you into this process this morning and why I'm kind of just speculating and really kind of just wrestling with some things that are unresolved. I want you to know that at this church, 
And really, I think, honestly, in any church that's following the true risen Lord Jesus, that it is okay to have some unresolved questions. It is okay to wonder. It is okay uh, to, to wrestle with God and to work out what we believe. And the grace of God means that there's room to breathe. There's room to really seek truth. And if we're actually seeking truth, then we're going to have some unresolved questions. We're going to have some things that we don't know with certainty. We're going to have some things that make us wonder, or make us scratch our heads, or that are difficult for us to understand. And what I want to invite us into as a church is, you know, just continuing in the process to actually deal with those things and not pretend that they don't exist. I think that's really important for our spiritual and emotional and mental development as believers in Jesus, is that we actually do ask the questions and seek out answers. And in the seeking out, we need to have a little bit of a room. We need to have space for sometimes we ask a question and we go a long time with it without it being resolved. And maybe our entire lives without it being resolved. But then as I stand up and I move back towards the pulpit in my role as a pastor, as a person who's been charged with the ministry of the gospel and preaching the word of God to people who are dedicated to following him and people who are trying to decide if they're dedicated to following him. I want to say this, that we need to have the response of the man in Mark chapter 9, who, while he struggled with belief, he struggled with trusting and, and, and actually having the faith and, and the, the, the certainty, if you will, that Jesus was able to heal his son. He cried out to Jesus in, in his weakness, in his honesty, and said, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That I believe that when we ask questions and when we have doubts even, uh, that if those are in good faith, if we're honestly seeking God, if we're honestly seeking the truth, that God's grace is, is there and is powerful to be at work among us. And that really when it, what it comes down to is that faith in Jesus is more about trust than it is about certainty. I'll say that again. I think faith in Jesus is more about trusting Jesus than it is about certainty about every little thing that we might wonder about when it comes to him that ultimately we have our questions, but we come back to a place of trust and obedience to the living God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. I think that's what God is calling us to when we read this story. A few other things I'll say about this passage. When it comes to biblical interpretation, it is important to distinguish when we read the Bible between passages that are descriptive and those that are prescriptive, okay? Here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of the Bible that is narrative. There's a lot of the Bible that is history or, you know, Jesus even told what we can, you know, uh, guess are uh, fictional stories. So those are part of Scripture too. Uh, there, there are stories that say something happened. This is what took place. And then there are other passages of the Scriptures that say, do this. We call those prescriptive. And so, even when we see stories like this in the Old Testament uh, or in the New Testament, we, we need to distinguish what is just a recording of the facts. This is the messy truth that really happened. And what is, uh, what is God calling us to do? 
And sometimes the descriptive narrative becomes prescriptive, uh, particularly in our interpretation of it. I think a lot of things start to fall in place, and a lot of our questions can be, begin to get answered as we look at this passage in light of the Jewish scriptures, or the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And this is something that the audience that would have read Luke and, and the people who were present when these events took place would have been very familiar with. In Leviticus chapter 10, there are these two guys, Nadab and Abihu. They're the sons of Aaron. And uh, the scripture says that they offered strange fire before the Lord or that they offered an unauthorized sacrifice. They, they came to God and worship, but they didn't worship God the way that God had prescribed clearly through the law of Moses that God would be worshiped and he would be honored. And these guys kind of brought maybe, I don't know, some Egyptian practices or just their own bright ideas or I don't know what, before God, and they fell down dead. Uh, we see a similar story in 1 Samuel 6, in the parallel in 1 Chronicles 13, where the ark of God gets captured by the enemy, the Philistines, and all kinds of havoc happens uh, related to that because the presence of God is holy, uh, and unholy people are um, profaning the Lord's ark uh, and his covenant, uh, and, and a, bunch of, a bunch of Philistines get hurt and messed up. But then, they bring it back, and the Israelites, uh, you know, open, decide just to open the Ark of God where, you know, theoretically the, the presence of God dwells, and 70 people die. In the parallel passage in, in 1 Chronicles 13, Uzzah actually reaches out to keep the Ark from tipping over. He's trying to be helpful. He's trying to be kind to God. He's trying to be good, but he touches the glory of God, and it kills him. And the thing that I think that is coming through in these Old Testament passages and that would have made sense to the original hearers of this story is that when we're dealing with God, we're dealing with God. We're dealing with the source of all matter and all energy, the, a, a source more powerful than the, than the deepest core of the sun with all of its gravity and magnitude and heat and intensity, that that God, the, the, the architect and creator of everything, is at work here. And when we approach God, we need to approach him with the respect that he deserves. And what's at work here and what's being shown in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts is this process where Jesus is changing the deal, right? He's changing the covenant. He's changing the way that people relate to God. And he's actually making it possible for everyone to come into relationship with God if they'll only say yes to the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's being made widely available so that the whole earth can know and worship a loving and good God. But when we consider God as good, we need to reckon with the fact that there are many parts of our lives that are not good. And when those not good parts of us come into contact with a holy God, we should tremble. We should be concerned. We're going before a judge, and we are guilty. And unless he decides to forgive us, we're going before judges, and we're guilty. There are going to be consequences. And so what I think that this passage is trying to say or wants to say to the New Testament church is do not mistake God's kindness for weakness. Don't get confused. 
don't think that because the grace of God has been extended to all people, that God doesn't care about the righteous state of your heart. Don't think that because you've prayed a prayer and accepted Jesus into your heart, that God doesn't care what you do with your body. Don't think that when we come to God and we, we pray in the name of Jesus and we see people healed and we see people come to him in relationship and we see people experience the Holy Spirit, don't think that our faith is unshakable and that we will make it to the end without continuing to trust in him and rely on him for our salvation. Don't think that because he welcomes prostitutes and sinners and drug addicts and people who vote for the wrong person and racists and homophobes and everyone else to the table, don't think that God doesn't care about the condition of your heart and the actions that you choose with your life. It matters our attitude to God. It matters how we live and how we respond to the creator of everything. God is totally loving. He is available to all of us, but he is a holy God. And Ananias and Sapphira's sin was not just against the church. It was against God. Ananias and Sapphira were insiders. They would have known these stories in the Old Testament. And they, they knew about this, this practice of selling everything. that they. I mean, you know, you don't do that because you're kind of like sort of thinking about maybe joining the church, right? I mean, come on, these people were initiated. They had full knowledge, or they should have had full knowledge of who they were dealing with. And they chose to rebel and to sin against the living God. It's important to remember that God is holy and he deserves our respect and he deserves our obedience. And if we don't respect him and if we are not obedient, that is to our peril. Another thing I think the Lord is saying to us through this passage is don't be half-hearted. Don't halfway this thing. Don't think you can kind of have a little bit of God. And we understand that people are in different places and that the high degree of commitment that God calls to people is maybe a difficult thing to just jump all into. We want to be a hospitable space. We want to be a place where people can explore, where people can uh, experience God for the first time and take the time to really consider the offer of salvation and, and make that commitment in a meaningful way with intentionality and with purpose. But when we make that commitment, it's an all-in commitment. Baptism means we die to our old life and we are raised to a new life in Christ. That we, we throw off and we renounce the sin and the powers of this evil age, the powers of worldly governments, the powers of the demonic principalities behind them and at work within them to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. We renounce those things and we turn to the living God in hope that we will be saved, in hope that we will be delivered from 
our own sin and from the consequences of our sin. I've been thinking about something that Phil Bowles said in a, uh, in a small group a little while ago. He said that, you know, there's a difference between immaturity and rebellion. And the way that God responds to immaturity is a lot different than the way that God responds to rebellion. And what I think we see in this passage is how God responds to rebellion. They're not the same thing. God has a lot of grace for all of us to be very weak, to be full of doubts, to be full of questions, to be half-hearted because we don't have anything else to offer. God has a lot of grace for us to struggle and to make mistakes. And I mean, look at Peter. Look at, look at all these people. Look at all these messed up jokers in the New Testament. I mean, Saul killed people before his conversion. I mean, like, and then, wrote, and then wrote a third of the New Testament. You know, like, there is no coming to God without grace. There is no coming to God without a lot of mercy from him. But when we come to him and we've accepted that grace, to then say, not good enough. Actually, I'm not sure I want that. Actually, you know, I'm good. I'm just going to sleep in this morning. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to sleep with who I want to. I'm going to eat when, what I want to eat, drink what I want to drink. I'm going to spend my money the way that I think it should be spent. I don't really care about what God would have me do. There's a difference between immaturity and rebellion. God has a lot of grace for immaturity. I even believe that he has a lot of grace for rebellion, but the way he deals with rebellion is very different. For disciples of Jesus, the expectation is that we turn from rebellion and that we continue to grow in maturity. Next, I think the thing that God is saying to us through this passage this morning that I think we can be certain about is that we need to be real. We need to be honest. We need to be who we say we are. And maybe who we really are is a person with doubts. Maybe who we really are is a person who's weak. Maybe who we really are is a person who is far from perfect. I am honestly all of those things. And if you read John's letter to the church that he's writing to, he says, actually, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. It's important to be honest. It's important to be real. It's important to confess our need for God and to do that in community with people who care about us and who want to help us grow and change, and turn away from those old things, and embrace the new things that God wants to do in our hearts. It's important to be honest and to be real, but it's also important to follow through with the things that we say we're going to do. We need to be the kind of people who say, when we say yes, it means yes, and when we say no, it means no. And where God is really confronting me in my own life about this is in just being in control of myself and the things that I commit to and having a handle on how I manage my time and my personal affairs. It's important because if I can't do that, then I can't be the person that I want to be. Then I can't be a person who makes commitments and keeps them. If I can't get to a place on time, I'm going to let people down. If I can't do the things that I say I'm going to do, then I'm not a trustworthy person. 
then I'm not who God is calling me to be. We need to work on becoming honest, dependable, real people. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. Again, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your own head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is more is from the evil one. Excuse me. And here's the thing. You know, I think that, uh, you know, one way you can tell that people are lying to you is when they give you extra assurances that you didn't ask for, Right? I swear, I, honestly, no, I really, really mean it. I'm going to do that. That's a good indication that the person you're talking to is not trustworthy. Believers in Jesus should be like Jesus, and Jesus is trustworthy. When Jesus says something, he means that stuff. And when we say something, we ought to be able to back it up in our hearts and with our actions. And what we do, that when we say we're going to do something, we do something. We can't be, we can't be half-hearted. We can't kind of, you know, play the field, ride the fence, you know, be half in and half out. This thing is all or nothing. When we come to Jesus, if we decide to come to him, it's all in. No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. When we commit, we commit and we're all the way. That's the call of God. And I think a lot of this really comes back to something that Jesus repeats over and over and over in the New Testament, and that the angels repeat, and that is even in Revelation, in that 21st chapter, in, this, in the list of things that are condemned. And that's, don't be a coward. Maybe a more kind way to say that, maybe a more kind way that Jesus and the angels said that is don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear. Don't be a person who looks at God and says, I'm not sure I can trust him. Jesus tells a parable about talents. And it gets a little obfuscated because we don't really understand what a talent is. A talent uh, is a thing that you earn over 10 or 15 years. And that's actually where we get our word for, like, abilities, right? You know, you do a trade for 10 or 15 years, you get good at it, right? You have a talent, right? Uh, but it also refers to an amount of wealth in the ancient world. And so when Jesus is telling this parable about the guy with one talent and two talents and five talents, uh, he's saying, you know, well, this guy had a million dollars, and this guy had two million dollars, and this guy had five million dollars. It's like a lifetime's earnings that, uh, that they've accumulated. And you know the story goes that the, the guy with five goes and puts it to work and gets five more. And the guy who, who has $2 million, he goes and he puts that $2 million to work and he gets $2 million more. And the guy who has $1 million takes his treasure and buries it because he's too afraid to do anything with what God has given him. I don't want to be a person who at the end of my life has to face the creator of everything the righteous judge who alone is worthy to judge every president and every citizen and every king and every subject, every peasant, every rich man, every poor person, every person who posts on the internet. 
I don't want to stand before that judge and say, I was afraid to do what I knew you told me to do. The invitation from God is to not be afraid. I, I think back to my old days, and, and they, were, they are getting to be quite old days. I, I, I'm just coming to a place in my life where I'm starting to realize the physical limitations that I have in my mid-30s that I didn't used to have. This thing is just a little, I don't know, it's not as greasy and, and springy as it used to be, but I, 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 uh, I, I used to be uh, something of a skateboarder uh, in my teenage years. It was actually skateboarding with friends that uh, kind of started off this series of events that, that led me to Jesus. And um, when you skateboard, especially on a half pipe, you know what that is? That's that thing that's kind of curvy like this. And you stand at the top and you do this thing, you, you drop in. And when you drop in, you've got your, you've got your foot on the back you know, part of the skateboard and, and your front foot goes on the, on, you, you want to put it right over the trucks, otherwise you're going to spill. And, uh, and so you put it right on the trucks. If you kind of halfway drop in, you're falling on your butt. There's no way. You're not going to survive uh, that, that drop in on the skateboard. When you drop in, you have to drop in fully. You have to really go for it. You have to throw all of your weight down on that fr- truck really quickly, or you'll lose your balance and you'll, and you'll spill uh, on, the, on that half pipe. And the kingdom of God is like that. It's risky inherently. And, but here's the word of caution from the Lord. It is more risky to do it half-heartedly. It is more risky, and you are more likely to get hurt if you try to protect yourself, if you try to hedge your bets and manage God and hold him at bay and negotiate with him. That's not the offer. The offer is obedience. The offer is doing what God has called us to do. And we as a community are called to do the stuff. We want to do what we see Jesus doing. And the good news is is that he is trustworthy. And he is good. And he is worthy of that risk. He's the only one who is worthy of that risk. No other leader, not me, not any leader in our government, no other person is deserving or worthy of the worship and adoration that Jesus is worthy of. He is worth our hearts, and we can trust him. And if we give ourselves to him, he gives himself back to us. He holds nothing back. And he invites us to the same thing, to walk in that path. The following verse after verse 11 is that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade that's a part of the temple, and no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. Here in a minute, 
we're going to do this stuff. And this is key to who we are as a church. This is what it's about. We want people to experience that. We want people to experience the healing and the new life and the justice and the redemption and the forgiveness of sins that is only available in Jesus Christ. And that is what is at offer here today. That's what we're doing. And so when we welcome the Holy Spirit and we invite people to come forward for prayer, part of what we're doing and part of the reason we ask people to come forward is that we want to give people the opportunity to be brave, to step forward, to take a physical action of obedience to God, to come before God and to come before God in front of other people, to, to, sh- to shed the fear of what other people think and to come before God in humility and receive whatever he has for us. And we balance that with really trying to honor that space. We train people to be gentle, to be kind, to be confidential. Part of the reason we ask people to come forward is because when we get done here, everybody else is going that way. And so while you step forward before God and before the community to say, I need him at work in my life, you're also stepping into a place of confidence. You're stepping into a place of holy trust. You're stepping into a place where the need that you share and that the, the hopes that you have and the things that you're hoping that God will do in your life remain between you and the person who you're praying for and God. And we've trained people to minister with tenderness and with care in this space. This is so important to who we are as a church. And I just want to say that if you've never had the opportunity to come forward and receive prayer this morning, that's an invitation that is available to you. And there's no shame if you don't. But for believers in Jesus, part of what we're saying when we are baptized, when we commit ourselves to Christ, is that we die to everything else. That we're willing to die for this. That's part of the ask. I made that very clear with my seven-year-old son before he was baptized. This isn't a joke. And I think that that level of commitment means that we ought to be willing to step forward and get prayer from somebody who's going to be really nice to us sometimes. Okay? We continue to be a place where we don't coerce people. It's okay to to go at your own pace and to, to follow God, but For those of us who've committed our lives to Christ, there's an invitation here this morning. Come and receive everything that God has to give for you. And if you're part of this church, you call this church home, you're a member here, and I just want to kind of make this, I just want to put this out there to talk about. If you go like a month without getting prayer ministry, ask yourself why. Why is that? If I go like four weeks, without asking another person to pray for me about a real need in my life. What's, what's going on there? There's an invitation from God to examine that, to face that, and I would say to turn from it, whatever it is. Would you stand?